Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we peakedly discuss the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are backfires with admirable intention. These books explore the inner motivations of their characters to unintended effect. Every character becomes so humanized and fully realized that the villains sort of seem like the protagonists, and everyone else on this episode is probably going to disagree with that, but... We'll get to it. I had a very fraught journey reading this <laughs> and understanding how I was supposed to feel. Mm. Novelizations are, despite my misgivings, verdantly <laughs> descriptive in a way that matches and surpasses the visuals on screen. That's the one bone I have to throw to it this week. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. And I'm Hannah Blackman. And the fun thing about these intros is that Andrew writes them, and then we all just have to act like we kind of agree with his gross generalizations about the book. (laughs) (laughs) You say that, but there's never been an episode where you haven't cut in and been like, wrong, (laughs) no. I want to make it clear that that does not represent my experience. (laughs) I'm not going to let some man speak for me. Crimson Peak. (laughs) is a 2015 gothic romance mystery. Mystery? Sure. Directed by Guillermo del Toro and starring Mia Wasikowska, Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, and Charlie Hunnam. The film forefronts Edith Cushing, a wealthy heiress who finds herself hopelessly in love with a man her father will not abide due to his deep, dark secrets. On the heels of said father's brutal murder, Edith commits herself to the suitor and implicitly to his sinister sister as well. When it's revealed that her new husband expects her to live on the... (laughs) I also don't read these in advance, so I... (laughs) (laughs) When it's revealed that her new husband expects her to live on the salt planet from the end of Star Wars The Last Jedi, Edith begins to suspect that other details about him may be suspect. Double suspect in one sentence, Andrew. And commences a clandestine investigation into these strangers suddenly made all too familiar. Also, there's ghosts. Yeah, it's really uh, shocking that I made an error in writing because I spend <laughs> a lot of time on these and do not throw them together 30 minutes before the episode. Uh, Hannah it's not recently, like I love to tease you about it. <laughs> yeah, Hannah recently caught me in the Google Doc <laughs> before the episode being like, the emoji movie is a bl- <laughs> It was fun. It was very fun. The novelization of Crimson Peak was written by Nancy Holder, based on a screenplay by Guillermo del Toro and Matthew Robbins. It was published by Titan Books in 2015. Who is Nancy Holder? I did very cursory work on Nancy Holder, but I will say Mm -hmm. that she, like many of the novelizationists we've covered, has a rich career uh, writing TV tie-in books, and, like many of the novelizationists we've covered, specifically Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, also Seems recent- like a good fit for this one. Seem- yeah, definitely. It, it, that's sort of an interesting aspect of a lot of these writers, is like, we saw this last week, even though it was a month ago for us, we saw this <laughs> last week with Cowboys and Aliens. It was like the author of Cowboys and Aliens had written a bunch of original fiction, but it was original fiction that was sort of cowboys and aliens aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Um, So whoever finds the people to write these books for these movies seems to be doing a good job. Um, Recently, Nancy Holder did a tie-in book for Firefly. In 2018, she did a tie-in book for Firefly. They're still writing them? I get it. Like, it's a cult... 
people love it, but it, it just is shocking to me that that's still going on in the like canceled Joss era. But whatever. <laughs> she's really ramped up her uh, novelization production recently. Uh, I think she's always kind of been writing them, but in recent years she did this one, Crimson Peak, as well as the 2016 Ghostbusters and Wonder Woman. So. Hmm. Women's stories. <laughs> women's stories, yeah, absolutely. Is this one a, a women's story? It's about a woman. It's about a woman, and she is the lead, and it's about her experiences and feelings. So yeah, I think it's a, a story about a woman, and the primary antagonist is also a woman. Mm-hmm. I've never been so completely owned in a debate. <laughs> it's, just, it's just objectively true what you just said. <laughs> Ooh, our guest today, an actress as well as acting coach out of New York City, Casey Miko. Casey, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing pretty well. How are y'all? I can't speak for Hannah, but I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, don't. I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> Casey, you, um, obviously we force our guests to pick from like a list of 300 novelizations, so it's not true choice, but you did pick Crimson Peak. What uh, was your relationship to this uh movie before coming on this podcast and also second question feel free to take them in sequence do you have any relationship to movie novelizations aside from this one and it's okay if not so i have a deep history with this uh particularly involving hannah uh when this hannah and i are our pals we're best pals um, when this movie came out in 2015, Hannah was living in New York, and we went to go see this movie together at, I believe, the Regal Cinemas in Union Square. A classic locale. Um, it plays to a lot of things that both of us enjoy together and separately. Uh, Victorian hunky gothic boys and Guillermo del Toro. Uh and um, actually, part of why I picked this novelization is Hannah bought me the novelization years ago uh, for a birthday what? or Christmas or something like that. Yeah, this has been sitting on my shelf, unfortunately, sorry, Hannah, unread for, for years. Totally fine. <laughs> um, and as for uh, novelizations in general, the only one I have read before is one that I believe Hannah also got me, which is the novelization <laughs> of the musical film West Side Story. <laughs> Look, I'm spreading the good word. It's my duty. I don't mean to start beef with the the guest, but isn't that technically a novelization of the play? Or is it a novelization of the Oh, film? believe you me, they have made it clear it is a novelization of the 1961 film. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> It's well, I know I do know why because there are um, rearrangements to the um, sequence of the plot in the film. Uh, Officer Krupke hmm. and Cooler flip to different people sing them, so um, it is directly adapted. Um, you know, America is um, uh, all the shark girls and all the shark boys are in the play. It's all the shark girls, so there are differences. They're not enormous differences. Um, most right. of them were stuck to in the newest movie, too. Like, those changes stayed. Uh, so there were mm -hmm. good changes, but they are different <laughs> than the source material. That's interesting because we've found, uh, I think Hannah would agree with me. I'm trying to put words in her mouth all episodes <laughs> this week. Um, I think Hannah would agree with me that we found that, like, 
there really isn't um, quality control on faithfulness to movie in a lot of older novelizations. And so, like, season one of the show, we did Great Expectations. Uh, it's a specifically a novelization of the Ethan Hawke film. And Which even is already, that, like, miles away from Dickens. Yes, and even that was like, I'm going to change so much stuff from the film. Because, like, who's checking? It was really crazy. Oh, man. I don't think I've ever seen that, but now I want to... I'm a Dickens fan <laughs> myself, so I want to see what Wild Swings... It's a, it's a weird movie. It's really weird, so yeah. check it out. <laughs> Speaking of weird movies... <laughs> Hannah, I'm assuming that a lot of your history with this film was just covered. Yeah, we saw it together. I think it's really good. I've watched it multiple times since then. It really holds up for me as a good movie (laughs) and a very successful gothic romance. I mean, I think it was advertised as a horror movie, which Mm -hmm. then people were like, that's not a horror movie, boo. And I'm like, no, it's like Jane Eyre, but like ghostier, um, which is my cup of tea. So... Yeah, and then I rewatched it for this and was like, fuck yeah, holds up. (laughs) I'd like to get into uh, genre here. I don't understand why everyone seems to classify this as a gothic romance. Doesn't it feel like the thrust of the story is about the conflict involving murdering people? That's not un-gothic. It's it's quite gothic. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. that it, it crosses genres I've I've also heard people call it not a horror movie, um, which I find odd because there are um, skeletons and vats of clay and ghosties like um, crawling <laughs> after really people stuff. and someone <laughs> falls off of I don't know how much we spoil up top, but somebody is thrown from <laughs> the third floor. <laughs> um, it's I, you know, is it? Uh, um, you know, horror porn? No, but it's absolutely about murder, death, and ghosts, mm-hmm. which I no, I call that horror. And there right. are romance I feel exactly. Elements. I do think that's true. I, I feel exactly the opposite of this person you're describing. I'm like, stop <laughs> calling it a romance. This is like a horror film with a romantic element for sure, but I almost feel like romance Im- implies that there's like supposed to be some level of sympathy for the romance. The romance to me seems like a delivery system for the horror. Well, mm, to com- I think that oh sorry. Oh, I was going to say to compare to the novel Edith is writing within the the movie/book, she's writing a ghost story that has a romance element to it. So, mm-hmm. I think that that's what you're supposed to take away from it is that this isn't this has romance to it, and I actually think the book had significantly more. Um, yes, mm-hmm. definitely. But it is a ghost story, murder story at heart. Yeah, mm-hmm. one of the things I like about the movie so much is how much it sets itself up. It's like, it almost in the first like maybe 10 minutes of the movie, Edith says, like, it's not a ghost story, it's a story with ghosts in it. Like, And that's true of Crimson Peak. Like. It is a ghost story. It is about ghosts, but it's mostly the ghosts are secondary to Edith's journey. The horror is secondary to her like growth and development and her strength, her like development of internal strength. Um, And all of that, uh, like the 
The ghosts being a metaphor for the past, they are literally the past. That's full gothic stuff. The house they're in, the sort of like spooky mad woman in the attic stuff. It's just like playing on a lot of these sort of classic gothic tropes. And whether you feel more towards the romance or feel more towards the horror, like those are intermingled in gothic stories. Um, And that's what I think it's very successful in those elements, that it has a good mix of both and it knows how to activate them. I I would agree because, I mean, frankly, there's a lot of romance in Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's still exclusively a vampire story but Parker (laughs) and Mina have a lot going on and then there's three dudes who are in love with Mina it's like there's a lot going on um so there is certainly heavy romance elements in a lot of gothic novels but at their heart they're generally some sort of horror thriller type thing Mm -hmm. yeah I think that that makes sense that this basically boils down to I don't really I'm not super familiar with the genre right (laughs) And so I'm like t- taking issue with a with a genre moniker that's very well established and people <laughs> recognize. And I'm like, well, let's talk about the words they chose. And it's like, oh, you mean in the year 900? <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So this book, the 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 intro that I did, Hannah, mm-hmm. you seem to push back against a lot, which I get. Is, are we in general, and not that we're doing like closing thoughts here, but <laughs> you're both feeling pretty positively about this book? Yeah. Yeah. I okay. Liked it. What are its merits in your mind? And then I'll go into why I kind of just didn't give it the fair shake it deserved. I mean, I I think it's like a very pleasant read. It's mm-hmm. not it's not a masterpiece by any means. I'm not going to say that, but it's. The things I like about the movie are super present in the book. I, I like the characters. I like the locales. The horror stuff is like spooky. It's presented very much in the style of what would you know what Edith would be writing. Right. Where it's implied, it's spooky. It's not just like outright Stephen King horror writing, um, which is I think rich and interesting. The way it references other sort of gothic horror stories, I think, is really fun and interesting. There was a, there was a moment where I was like, oh, flowers in the attic, right? which obviously is more modern, but is sort of a gothic horror in its own way, right? And there's like Northanger Abbey elements, there's Jane Eyre elements, there's all these little pieces throughout these like recurring motifs and metaphors. I think the way the book personifies the house was a cool surprise for me um, that I enjoyed being like, what am I, what am I reading here? Am I, is this a ghost perspective? What is it? And by the time it comes together, I was like, oh yeah, of course, cool, awesome. So like those sorts of like little additional surprises from the movie translated into the book, um, I thought were great and a lot of fun. It has a totally different perspective on some of the plot elements, like the romance, I think is presented very differently in the mm-hmm. book in a way that's fun and nice and I don't mind that you spend a little more time getting to know Thomas and Lucille as people I'm curious about them and so it's cool to get like a little more backstory a little more dialogue about like their deal Um, and especially Thomas who I do think is meant to be sympathetic to an extent the book is much more on that page than the movie is I think so I I had a good time reading it that's all it's fun (laughs) Casey? Yeah, I I completely agree. I I really loved seeing things from the house's perspective. Something that I think, even though I love Guillermo del Toro's visuals in the movie, 
Something that was much more visceral and clear in the book is how dilapidated the house was. Because Mm -hmm. in the movie, which I watched this morning to just make sure I was refreshed, (laughs) it's kind of just dusty and has a roof problem. Like, the, the book talks so much about... You know, the floorboards are rotting beneath their feet. You feel like she's going to literally fall through the floor at some point. And in the movie, you're just like, get a good dust buster and a tarp on that roof, <laughs> and it's a functional house. And I, I yeah. think... And it's a beautiful house. And it's a beautiful house. house. That's the thing, is um, the book was more specific about them selling things and how there should be nothing in the house, where I feel like their house in the movie is actually quite packed full of things to look at. Um and having the house literally be a character in the book um, <laughs> was very interesting. And also, I think why the romance part is more prominent in the book is that this book is so horny. Like, she is constantly <laughs> yes. talking mm-hmm. about how they haven't had sex yet, and she wants to have sex with him, and then they have sex. And, like, <laughs> it is so horny, which is actually a big, I think, a big part of... Um, a lot of those books that Hannah was referencing is the tension of not having sex because it was so verboten uh, in that time period. And something that I liked a lot is uh, I'm I'm really into the idea of the Edwardian era and the Victorian era and how they are different. I feel like even though they're both, all these characters are of an age that we would probably call them Edwardians. Uh, the the sharps are very victorian and stuck in their ways whereas um edith is presented even more independently in the book and more uh um modern than the other two Mm -hmm. even if they weren't murdering incestuous like borderline (laughs) twins i was gonna call them twins but they're not (laughs) um yeah i just think the book was more visceral and more even traditionally gothic than the film and the film was pretty spot on but it's you know Guillermo del Toro's visuals are so distinct that I think the book could stand on its own a little bit because it was more close to it it felt like more of a reference than the movies were the movie was Mm -hmm. just to say about the house in the movie I get what you mean the book is like (laughs) this thing is falling apart you know it as they say in the movie it's sinking into the earth and in the book it's like the earth is eating it mm-hmm. it's, it's you know <laughs> it's being subsumed but uh i just don't want to downplay uh, a column of snow coming into your house is a problem <laughs> i mean it definitely it is. is beautiful as it may be but it doesn't seem to have affected it's the floor problem. very much based on the, the like uh I don't know if we're to believe that the the roof thing just happened, but they have a lovely like tile style floor in in the movie. Yes. So it doesn't even look like the snow's doing anything bad to the house. Yeah. I would also say like Edith is running around in her nightgown a huge amount of this movie. And if that house is as cold as it should be with a giant ass hole and they can't afford to keep it heated, she should put a robe on. Like, there's certain things where, like, in the book, it's very clear, like, it's cold, it's miserable in there, it's damp, and you don't quite get that same viscerality out of the movie. Um, maybe just because it it is a beautiful visual to have snow coming through, and you do want her in her big white nightgown. Mm-hmm. Um, great visuals, not complaining. Yeah, I, I feel like <laughs> the ghosts were more visceral and tactile in the movie, but mm-hmm. the house was more visceral and tactical in the book. 
it was mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, I'm not all that freaked out by the ghosts in the book. And maybe that's just visuals versus, you know, in a scare situation. Um, but I felt like watching the movie, I was like, oh, yeah, this is the creepy ghosties I want to see. But in the yeah. book, I was like, oh, yeah, this is the gross house I want. I think it's probably a very good book. And here's, <laughs> it, like, ju- as I often do on, on episodes, I'm just going to read a little bit of the first page. Because this is definitely, like Cowboys and Aliens, which we just did, this is definitely another <laughs> book where you open it up and you start and you're like, language, beautiful language, okay. There's an so, illustration and everything. Yeah, oh, Hannah's holding up what, what has the aesthetic of, like, a pencil drawing of, uh, of the manor. Um, okay, so the prologue begins, love, death, ghosts, the world was drenched in blood, a scarlet fog veiled the killing ground, then dripped down through the greedy, starved mine shafts into the tortured vats of claret, clay, that bubbled and gasped on the filthy, bone-white tile, crimson earth seeped back up through the walls of mud, Allerdale Hall was ringed with brilliant red, a stain that clawed towards Edith's bare feet. But that was the least of her troubles. Hell's own child was coming for her. Implacable, unstoppable, a creature fueled by madness and rage that had maintained and murdered and would kill again unless Edith struck first. But she was weak, coughing blood and stumbling, and this monster had already claimed other lives, other souls, stronger and hardier than hers. It's just, it's a good... That's a gripping opening. And I, I you know, I, I also think, and I, I, I'm going to try to find it later, but I think a lot of the the ghost appearances throughout the book are really impressively written and better than the effects in the movie. Like, this, the one where the, the ghost is crawling across the floor in the movie, I think doesn't look that good, especially for 2015. Um, whereas I think that... Uh, that the author really pluses up and like it kind of activates my imagination in a way where it seemed much scarier on the page. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I've complimented the book. <laughs> Here's what happened this week. This is like a failure of me as the as a host of a novelizations podcast. <laughs> I read the book. I listened to the audiobook is how I is how I did it. And this will probably just be we'll just refer to as the episode where I tried 1.4 speed. <laughs> and it broke my brain. We've just been okay. reading a lot of books for Authorized, and I was like, I want to be doing a lot of biking this week. I'm going to put the speed up just a little bit, and I'll get through this book. And um, I'm the type of person who, I was at a Mexican restaurant the other night, and there was music playing and a TV on, and I had to leave, because it was just two two noises really close to me. So 1.4 speed, I should have known. No, no, no. Not something my brain can process. So here's what happened. I agree with you, Hannah, that the book does make the lovers more sympathetic. It does make you like the relationship a lot more. And I think that that is good because my mind was sort of being rended in two and I was in denial about it. I took that so sincerely i bought it so completely that i just thought for sure that every single character we were following was a protagonist i was meant to like that's a you problem i, I know say. Yeah. i'm saying it's a me problem 
I'm totally mm-hmm. saying it's a me problem. It's like I, I just did a little Thomas. experiment this week. It went terribly. So yeah. <laughs> so uh, yes, I know. I, I, so you were w- reading this book and you were like, I get I'm supposed to like Lucille, Lucille's but I just so don't. <laughs> what I thought was that it was a okay. I, I need to find the specific place where um, Cushing, the father, gets killed. So this is, uh, of course, kind of the inciting incident in the movie. No, that's not what inciting incident means. A thing that happens in the movie is that uh, about 30 minutes in, after uh, Edith's father has been like, do not marry my daughter, I hate you, I I found out bad things about you that the audience can't know, Um, he's brutally murdered right afterwards. Uh, The passage is, um, do, 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 misclouded his vision, he's in the bathroom. Uh, he's gonna gonna die. Misclouded his vision as he prepared to disrobe. Then a shadow flitted behind him, startling him, and he turned to see if Benton had returned. There was no one there, but there had been someone, and he had the distinct feeling that it was that he wasn't alone. Any member would announce himself. It was curious and rather off-putting that they had not. Perhaps it was his imagination. And still, feeling rather silly, he checked the lockers. Of course, they were empty. Hot water was spilling over the basin. In his distraction, he had let it run too long. His flat razor fell, the soap brick too. With a grunt, he bent to pick them up, nicking his finger. Clay-red blood swirled down the drain. Clay-red blood. There it was, the shadow again. Then someone grabbed him by the cuff of his robe and the back of his head. Before he could react, his head was slammed down against the basin's corner. There was no pain, only shock. He staggered, went down. The figure loomed over him, grabbed his head, and smashed it again and again against the porcelain. He heard his bones crush as his nose shattered. As his nose shattered. So, yeah, he goes on to die. The the problem (laughs) for me, and I'm stupid. I want that on the record. It's my fault. The problem for me is this book starts with, I think the movie didn't start this way, right? With the flash forward of her already fighting some un- It did start that way. It does. It starts with her in the fog. Okay. Well, the book starts being like, I'm going up against a great evil, and it's describing it as a monster. And then there's all this ghost stuff early in the book, like being like, oh, they're being watched, to the point where when this passage happened, and even before this, like in the in the run-up to the murder, we're, we're hearing about like the figure following the dad or whatever. I thought it was a book about the dad got killed by a supernatural thing, and... Had you seen the movie before you no, read this book? No, no. Right. I wasn't okay. even, like, aware of this when I put it on the okay. list. So, <laughs> as we... D- Interesting. W- we frequently discover this unauthorized. I, like, haven't seen many movies. So, um, the I really thought that it was a story of, like, man versus supernatural... And also there was a interpersonal drama playing out in the forefront. So I didn't think Lucille was just pals. I didn't think all the characters loved each other. But I thought that that was a thing I was supposed to be invested in. How are they, like, getting past their differences? And also there's this creeping thing none of them are paying attention to because only I, the audience, am aware of it. Which does sound good, right? Mm-hmm. It's just not what this is. When I started watching the movie, I was like, I'm so stupid. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you're entirely wrong, though. There is this looming background. We're supposed to feel that the ghosts are a threat. 
and they scare Edith and they scare her and it makes her feel unsafe and she thinks they're coming after her. Even her own mother, she feels threatened by that ghost. Mm-hmm. Even though every, as we get through the story, we realize all the ghosts are trying to protect her and help her and warn her. And that's one of the tricks that the movie and the book plays is that like, what are we up against here? And it turns out you're not up against the ghost, you're up against a human being. And she's the real monster. And she is so sick. She's really she's not like, nice. She's such an unwell person. Yeah. Um, and not nice. And so the interpersonal drama of like Edith being a very good new wife, trying so hard to be like, we're sisters now, we're gonna fill this home with love and joy, and we're gonna fix it, and it's gonna be great, and we're all gonna be happy. Even to the point where she's like, we need to leave this house. Lucille should come. We should all leave. Like, Edith is doing her gosh darndest to make that interpersonal relationship work. And it's not her fault that it can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, sorry, go ahead. Casey. Oh, I was going to say, well, this also may come down to, A, I've seen this movie before, but B, I was looking <laughs> at Guillermo del Toro's, um, uh, his directing, specifically his directing um, resume today on IMDb. And he very often makes the mon- the quote-unquote monster the good person or or people mm-hmm. are afraid. Like, Shape of Water, everyone's terrified. I believe Doug Jones is the name of the guy that plays all those characters. And he also... Doug Jones is the mother, right? He's both, uh, both mothers. He's Lady Sharp and um, Edith's mom. Um, mm-hmm. And A, anytime Doug Jones is played, he's probably not a bad guy in a Guillermo del Toro movie, except for the... <laughs> hand eyeball thing in Pan's Labyrinth, which like debatable right. if that's a bad guy. Has also come up this season. <laughs> oh yeah. Authorized, yeah. Oh god, I didn't know that had a novelization. Um Oh, that's not how it came up. Oh, I just okay. found a I just found a way to incorporate a photo of that character into an episode. Oh, so so freaky. But like even Hellboy is all about like, oh well this this guy's not as bad, you know, society thinks this, that and the other. So I feel like Going into this uh, movie, I, I kind of, you know, m- people are the monsters in most Guillermo del Toro movies. That's kind of, I, I think, my mindset about it. But that also requires mm-hmm. you to like look through his IMDb before you actually read or watch it um, and go, hey, isn't this weird? And all his movies are about how we are the monsters. Maybe it was Dr. Frankenstein who was the true monster. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Dr. Frankenstein was the monster. The The doctor's name was just Frankenstein. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Sorry to correct you, but I just, I can't, I can't stand to hear something so wrong. Oh, of course, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, the, yeah, I, I, I think that the, it might be clearer in the book than in the movie that um, these things are a little more than they seem, than just spooky ghosts who are trying to hurt people. But it's also part of why I I kind of was like, okay, so the ghosts aren't going to be so much because they can't move stuff. <laughs> they can't <laughs> touch. She can't touch them, and they can't touch her. They just uh, skitter after her in a very creepy Doug Jonesy way, and then. Mm-hmm they disappear again. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good point. It's, it's just described so viscerally in the books. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the appearance, um, the main one where it's like following her down the hallway that happens like shortly after she moves in uh, to the, to the, the giant house mm-hmm. is so frighteningly written 
that it didn't even occur to me, this thing that you're completely correct about, that it wasn't hurting her. I was like, this is I emotional mean, they're trauma. So scary. They're yeah. so scary. They're and like again, to be fair, they're skeletal. I've seen this they post. have like <laughs> remnants of skin. They're covered in blood or clay. We know it's clay by the end, but like blood. They like effuse like fumes. Mm-hmm. They're horrifying and they can't really speak. So like they're scary. They're fucking scary as hell. Mm-hmm. Even if they are benign, they look horrific and frightening. Right. And uh, yeah, again, I have yeah. to say my mind was in a certain place reading this book after having seen it multiple times so it is easy for me me to read this book and go like those are spooky but they're not they're not your real problem edith come on (laughs) yeah definitely i mean i think i it's always a a topic of conversation on the show like what's the intention of the novelization is it supposed to be something that supplements your existing knowledge of the movie or is it supposed to be something that stands on its own, or in some cases, legitimately thinks it's better than <laughs> the thing it's novelizing, which they often are. Um, and this is a weird mix, because this this isn't some thrown-off novelization that seems to be like, you saw the movie, if you want a little more Crimson Peak, here's a fun thing to read. This seems very involved, very like dedicated. But I do think, mm-hmm. just to defend myself a little bit, I do think it's a confusing thing to ingest if you haven't seen the film. Okay. That, yeah. I mean, that sure. Mm. Can't. I wish I could have that experience. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't. Yeah. See, what I, I found as a person who likes the movie is that it cleared up a lot for me, actually, in a way that... Uh, yeah, it'd be hard to read it on its own. Or are the things that are confusing supposed to be? Because mm-hmm. um, what helped for me at... I thought this was much clearer than the movie. And I didn't think the movie was wildly unclear. But, you know, uh, uh, I think Mia Wasikowska, or how I know she's Polish, however you say her name, um, is trying... is doing a great job with someone that the audience doesn't understand her inner workings because it's not said out loud the way it is in the book. So you're like, mm-hmm. oh my god. You are not that smart. And it's it's like, what this is... I think we all could have figured this out instead of you. But... Uh, uh, and the same for... Um, uh, Alan, the Dr. Michael, Charlie Hunnam in the movie is just a little... Everybody's like a, a, a few more steps behind than I think is reasonable in the movie sometimes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Although, to Alan's credit... When he shows up at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. he is yeah. not doing. I mean, he he gets stabbed. Like they get the they get the drop on him, but he is not doing. You know, the the cop that comes in at the end of the horror movie, idiocy. Right. He comes in and he's like, "I am not turning my back to you. We are going to a hospital. We're walking out right now." Mm-hmm. And it's like this is assertion that I'm not used to from this type of character who's obviously going to fail. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I love Alan. He's a sweet character. I, I, and the subversion that he shows up and he's totally unsuccessful is delightful. Um, but he thinks he's in a different kind of story. Like by the time he shows up, we're in a full horror story. Like Edith is about to be murdered mm-hmm. immediately. Mm-hmm. And he right. shows up like, I'm in a detective story and I solved the problem. <laughs> like the crime has been solved let me walk and out. I'm gonna rescue the girl. <laughs> 
because I called them out on mm -hmm. it, right? Like he's in a totally different story and then has to be like forcibly reminded that he's in a horror story by getting stabbed multiple times. Right. And Edith, who knows where she is, is able to save him. Mm-hmm. It's one of those little genre touches that I really like in the story, book, and movie. You know what I think might also be causing kind of the oh everything makes more sense to me in this book than in the movie that I didn't think didn't make sense is that every single actor outside of Tom Hiddleston is not doing their natural accent and it became more <laughs> prominent the more the movie goes on you know mm -hmm. Charlie Hunnam I believe is Australian or from New Zealand one of them's from New Zealand uh, Mia Wasikowska is born in Australia Jessica Chastain's American like Everybody sounds like they're not doing it so correctly. <laughs> yeah, yes. And it's yeah. very like, where are we? I'm completely ungrounded and Tom Hiddleston is the only like, uh, you know, stake in the ground <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> if I may just be a, a little horny about, um, <laughs> about Ch Charlie for a second. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, let's all get horny for a second. For sure. Everybody's crazy hot in this movie. I mean, Charlie's so, he's such an attractive guy and he's he's got um i'm just like a fully objectifying him but he, he just like has those like those those deep soulful eyes where you're like i know you're super hot i know i should distrust you because you could get away with anything but every time i look <laughs> at you i believe everything but Andrew, that's like the appeal blonde. of charlie to me of course he's trustworthy he's blonde in a horror movie <laughs> Yes. He's like a classic American hero. And, they have black and Tom hair. Hiddleston. Yeah, they have black hair and he's very sharp and that makes him bad. And like it's very <laughs> traditional visual storytelling. And like Tom Hiddleston is crazy hot. Mm -hmm. He's really, really compelling in this movie. That scene in the attic where she's like, Oh, I love all your little inventions. He's like, Oh, no one's ever loved my inventions before. <laughs> like <laughs> he's like one of the best pieces of performance I've like ever mm -hmm. seen. Um Yeah, I mean Hunnam gets a lot of slack or scrap whatever most of the time i think for being not the best actor but he's perfectly suited to this role as like a sort of just like good-hearted american dude mm -hmm. i also will say to objectify both of the main men in this film <laughs> terrible haircuts like oh, very attractive casey, this is awful should have shorter hair casey this is why i brought him up in the first place that's where i was going <laughs> is there's a thing going on with charlie in this movie a man i would die for where like when his little wisp, his little, his little, um, his little strand of hair is on his forehead, I'm like, look at that ugly blockhead. And then when, <laughs> when his, when his forehead is clear and I'm getting maximal skin, I'm like, I, I, I love him. I'm in love with him. I think, and this is only on, you know, I have not done so much scholarly research, but I am an enthusiast in the both Victorian and Edwardian eras. I don't believe either of those haircuts are period accurate. I think the women's <laughs> haircuts are closer, but, you know, men had short hair back then, too. <laughs> like, like Downton Abbey is a more accurate interpretation of that time period, even though it ten, starts ten years later. Um, they're, I think they're real. They really were like, these men must have long hair, and I don't think either of them are suited for it. And the dressy version of long hair on men is like, um, you know, grease down side part. And it's <laughs> not doing Charlie any favors. Yeah. It's, and like, at least Tom Hiddleston has like really lovely curls. Yeah. And his hair like gets curlier as the movie kind of goes on and he's not presenting in society as much. And that's 
beautiful. We love the curls. Mm -hmm. Poor Charlie with his like thick straight hair (sighs) is suffering with like a chin length haircut. Yeah, it's so unfair. It's very, you know, not that no one would have had long hair back then, but it's not inaccurate, I should say, to have shorter hair. You know, and mm-hmm. it doesn't suit his face. And he's supposed to... We're, I feel like we are supposed to look at Charlie Hunnam and go, oh, I can't believe you didn't want to be with this guy first. He's so handsome. And it's just like they <laughs> took a very handsome man and was like, let's like dial it down a little bit. What if he wasn't like so good looking that obviously she would go yeah, for him? He can't be There's too hot to I be a doctor. Like the- <laughs> Right. An ophthalmologist or whatever. He's not even a physician. It's amazing. Um, There is, like, I think the book is so much clearer about how, like, they are childhood friends. And she kind of sees him as a brother Mm -hmm. for most of it. That she, like, can't think of him that way because, like, she's known him too long. And by the time he shows up at the end, she's like, oh, my God, what was I thinking? Mm -hmm. He's been there the whole time. And he's great. Duh. Um, Which is also not the vibe you get at the end of the movie that they're then going to get together maybe which i did kind of feel in the book which is a meaningful change yeah i like that i like that a lot i'm happy for them (laughs) i like that as an arc but i will say and i I, you know it's fine i'm the dummy this week i'm gonna misunderstand (laughs) everything that was in the book you're not no i've got more to reveal so (laughs) so one of the things is that i really misunderstood the alan character in the book because there was so much emphasis on like he's my friend he's not romantic and blah, blah 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 and that was that was underscored more i was like oh this is like sinister that he's taking such an interest in oh. early on before it's revealed mm. that like she is definitely for real in mortal danger i was like why is he digging into these people's past like this is not healthy <laughs> and um I- and i of course at the same time thought they weren't the villains. So there's just a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> well, to be fair to the book and movie, uh, Edith's lawyer did come up to Alan and be like, you know, before he was brutally killed, I won't say murdered because they didn't suspect murder yet, but killed, uh, Edith's yeah. dad hired a private investigator to look into these people. And that really, I think, is what took him in that direction of something yes. creepy's going on. Vern Gorman also doing a fake accent. Yes. One of his better American accents. Yes. I love it. Not his strongest suit, but I love him very much. Sinister I just face. thought that Cushing, look, I'm wrong again, but I just thought that Cushing the dad, I thought he was, I thought he found something that was just the evidence of like bad business or something embarrassing <laughs> mm-hmm. that like, mm-hmm. that basically fortified his existing judgments. And that he was like, I'm being the guy in a romance that says don't be together. I think that's fair. I think we also mm-hmm. were given that option like as an audience. I think that that's supposed to be a read before things get really murdery. Um, <laughs> what if I was like, I stand by it. Well, but the thing is, like, <laughs> even if that were true, that's still not mm-hmm. good for Edith. He's still going to try to steal all of her money. So she's not in mortal danger, but in financial danger. And -hmm. what it turns out that Mr. Cushing sees is not the murder. It's that Thomas is already married. It's that he's Mr. Rochester, Mm -hmm. a sexy gothic hero. (laughs) So like the the impediment is really that he's already married and they never reported any of the deaths, Mm -hmm. which is bad form. You should eventually report. They've happened over such a length of time. Mm -hmm. You should report them eventually. That's absurd. Um, bad call sharps. 
you know something that came to mind that's completely off topic, and I'm sorry if I'm cutting in. Oh no, go for oh, it. This please. whole scene <laughs> where uh, Mr. Cushing's like, I don't like you because I shook your hand and your hands are soft. He didn't start building this machine like after they got married. Like they, st- <laughs> he started had probably been working with his hands for a long time. And he was mm-hmm. just like, no, you got soft-ass hands. And I was like, first of all, Cushing works in an office now. And <laughs> he probably didn't have soft-ass hands because they hadn't been rich for decades. It was... There is a sort of weird That's my element, big problem. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> B- bouncing off of that, there's a piece where, like, Cushing says to him, like, do you even have a full-size thing? And he's like, not yet. Then we get back to the house, and there's, like, three of them. Yeah. Yeah. Full-size and basically operational. Yeah, they, like, they basically work. So, I don't know. Work. He's just, like, not presenting what he has to invest in very well. Right. And maybe Thomas is not a good businessman. Like, he is kind of presenting himself to Edith as. That she sees him, and she's like, he's really got something. Mm-hmm. And he's good. And he isn't doing it right. Like, he should say, I have three that are so close. Yeah. We need extra parts. Here's the parts I need. That's what I need the money for. And also, like, what do you think I'm here asking money to do? If not to build this. <laughs> he, he probably got interrupted, like, during the meeting. He was probably like, no, I don't, I don't have a full-size model. I have, I have three. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings up something that was interesting about reading this book after watching the movie and then watching the movie again is I don't think I felt like the movie went too quickly. It was a two-hour movie. And then I get more explanation in the book, and I'm like, oh, yes, this meeting took longer, and he really dressed him down, and this, that, the other. And it is like 30 seconds in the movie, and watching it today, I was like, too quick. This, like... <laughs> like countless times I was like this is too quick you need to spend more yes. time on this in a two hour movie well his his I mean not his uh, her dad seems really mean in the movie mm-hmm. there's like yeah. way less time spent on what his deal is why he does what he does and it really does just feel like a nice man comes in and is like I like your daughter and also I'd like an investment and he's like I hate your guts mm-hmm. and then yeah later he gets a piece of paper validating those feelings but in the movie it's like Jim Beaver is the villain of the piece <laughs> yeah he's a cuddly nice man <laughs> yeah they don't have that whole stretch out of like my beloved wife died and now I'm fiercely protective of my daughter and all that also quickest thing in the whole thing is when he's just like is this a piece of fiction i think it's quite good and i like saw it a second ago (laughs) i love how much the book lingers on like he's reading her novel constantly yeah like i love that i also i mean a thing this is how it was like surprising is that the book is like he was in love with her immediately and i in the movie i was like really is yeah yeah it seems like he sees He's like chasing Eunice McMichael, who has too big of a family to be a good choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, she's the only American they know. So they're like, we'll chase her. Fine. Gets to America and is like, oh shit, basically an orphan. Perfect. <laughs> One impediment, no problem. So they take Edith. And like in the movie, I always felt like that scene in the attic is when he falls in love with her. Mm-hmm. And the book is like, nope, loved her from the beginning, which is rich and different. Yeah. And much more of a romance. It gives his character, yes, much more. It makes it much more romantic, as opposed to like, uh, oh no, I've pulled someone very innocent and pleasant into my life, and now I regret it. But more like, I really love her, and I wish we could make it work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
do you think that the this is a good book thing was a pickup tactic? Because I'm I'm not clear on whether the movie wants me to actually think he was able to read so quickly. I mean, in the same way that you read the first page of a book, Andrew, and are like, oh, good writing. I feel like that's what he does the first time they meet. He's like looking over her shoulder and he's like, oh, that's good writing. And then throughout the book, he's really engaging with her story more. Yeah, and they have more conversations about it. I I see what you mean, Andrew, because the movie, like, truly, he's like, I have an appointment with Mr. Cushing. Is this a piece of fiction? It's quite good. And there's like, (laughs) like, how do you know? You haven't read it. Where's in the book? It's like, he has to wait. So he is looking over her shoulder. So even if it's just the first page, you can get a vibe for it. I was like, I'm not the world's fastest reader, but I don't think I could read more than a sentence in the amount of time where he was like, oh, look, a piece of paper. I guess it's wonderful and I love you. You know, <laughs> this is this is both yeah. a joke and a serious point. I'm joking. I don't but think I'm... it's a pickup line, but because but... he at the time he says it, he doesn't know that she's the heiress. He oh. thinks she's a secretary. That's true. Okay. So I think it's a genuine moment of connection. <laughs> I was just going to say, it helps to like strip away sometimes the, the genre trappings and be like, this situation could still occur. And if I did this with a laptop at a Starbucks, people would be like, you did not read it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, <laughs> like, it just wouldn't be believable. Yeah. Well, it's another <laughs> thing making Mia Washkowska in the film seem like not completely cognizant of her surroundings and it's not because she falls for that and it's like well in the book it makes more sense because there's time we don't have the element of Mm -hmm. time in the movie and i kind of now that i've i didn't have a problem with this before but now that i've read this book i want just like a couple more beats between things but it's also Mm -hmm. not a short movie (laughs) There's, there's something in the book where I feel like she spends more... Like, in the movie, there's a real sense that she's like, wow, a hottie. Mm-hmm. Like, she's totally <laughs> enamored that. with him by, like, like one introduction. Um, and in the book, there's much more where she's listening to him speak. She's getting to know him. And she's like, oh, he's actually... He has a strong will. He has, like, a clear sense of himself. These are things I like and respect about him. And also, he is very good looking. Yeah. Um, which builds that sense of, like, why you would give up everything for this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, after your father's been brutal, and also her father is brutally murdered, and she's alone in the world, and she's traumatized, and he's there. Right. She really gives up her political stances on how baronets and the landed <laughs> gentry are a bad thing. So <laughs> quick in both, but exceptionally quick in the movie. She has like one line where she's like, "He didn't earn any of that money," and I've completely forgotten about it now. For the rest of my life, I'm chill with this. <laughs> Haven't you seen his shabby coat? He's good and pure. That's actually. right. He doesn't I mean, have he, any money, so he's good. He now. does eventually redeem it because, like, it. She she has no way of knowing this at the time, but it turns out that he's a guy who's so into his machine working that he puts his <laughs> naked hand into it. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was so, I mean, that was wild and If he wasn't a murderer, <laughs> yes. right? If he wasn't a stone cold killer, he'd be a super dateable guy for her. Like mm-hmm. he really does hit all the buttons. He is intellectually they're compatible. He is a hardworking, industrious guy. Um, unfortunately, he and his sister are doing both sex and murder. Mm-hmm. Hannah, Bummer. I have to ask the question. It's a giant embarrassment, and it's coming up <laughs> in way too many episodes. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I get it, but could you explain to me the motivation of the villains? <clears throat> yeah. Um, so they are landed gentry, and their house is a shit show. 
Yes. They're also incest siblings uh-huh. who, because of their very unfortunate upbringing, only had each other and flowers in the attic. Right. Right. So also Lucille is cuckoo. Like she's a cuckoo person. I mm-hmm. think Thomas is certainly not perfect, but like a more sane version. She spent time in a sanatorium being taken care of. Right. So they need money because their house is falling apart. And their lives are falling apart, and that's embarrassing and bad. And they want to bring their circumstances back up. To do that, the easiest way is to marry rich girls. Yeah. Right? So first, they find Pamela, who is older and wheelchair-ridden. They take her money. They kill her because Lucille can't stand the idea of having, like, another woman have anything to do with Thomas, period. So they're taking their money and killing the women. Then they run out of the money and they have to do it again. They do it three more times, successfully, (laughs) continually not investing that money in a way that makes it build on itself. Like, they're not doing it great. They're just killing for money and then spending it. Then they try to do it with Edith. And Thomas actually loves Edith, so he doesn't want to kill her, and he wants to have sex with her, and that drives Lucille off the wall and leads to the just, like, stabbing adventure of the last act of the story. I guess Does that the, make sense to you? Yeah, it was... I, I basically had it right, except that the yeah. underpinning of their motivation, I just wanted to make sure I understood because it seems so crazy that the whole well, it's reason- like it's like Luth- Lucille says, right? Like the crimes are for money, the horrors are for love. Like they could just take these women's money and not brutally murder them. But Lucille is so obsessed with her brother and cannot let him go or let him be with anyone else or let him look at anyone else that the moment a woman is like, well, he's my husband. She's like, what if I throttled the life out of you with my bare hands? <laughs> I, and it's the only way she can like live with what they're doing is by then killing these right. people. And, and oh. she can manipulate him into doing it because she keeps going, well, I took all those beatings for you. You wouldn't be where you are. She was abusing him even as a child when they weren't mm-hmm. having incestuous. Mm-hmm. Don't you love me? You said I, yeah. you would only ever love me. I can't believe you would leave me alone I like that. Like you, you, you know, yeah. even before it became sexual, she was mentally abusing him. So emotionally, I love that. I think that makes a lot of sense <laughs> for the characters. I just, I, I just couldn't believe that their reason for wanting money was just to save the house. It just seems like such it's a very British horrific thing. links to go to. It's it's super. It's like that's the British gentry is like all you have is your name and your house. And you can't let it go. Like, it's a it's an American concept that you would, like, move out of your hometown. Right? Yeah. <laughs> or, like, give up the family house. I think it's also... The, the English rich would never, ever, ever. And so, like, they're willing to kill for it. I, I also think, in addition to that, it's the idea for they have that, oh, if we get enough money and we have this machine, then the land will yield and we'll be rich forever. And we will never have mm-hmm. to actually do any physical labor. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Thomas likes his inventions, but if this one worked and the clay mines went back on, they would be uber crazy rich forever. And they theoretically would never have to work a day, uh, another day in their lives. And they have no... Um, and neither of them would have to get married. Yeah, that's right. true. That's true. And neither of them have skills to do anything else. Mm-hmm. This would be an amazing double feature with a new leaf. Oh, I don't it's like know. It's like the that. same exact plot. I haven't seen a new oh, leaf. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, it's just the same exact plot, but what if we found that funny instead of terrifying? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, marriage for money, something some people do, you know, sometimes you have to do it. It can be funny. In this case, they're also doing a shit ton of murders. The, the The insane thing about A New Leaf, which I do recommend, is it's the same to the point that it is marriage for money, and then I will kill her. Yeah, I don't think that's <laughs> uncommon. I think that's a pretty common plot point in gothic horror specifically. In mm-hmm. uh, I will get your money and then murder you for it so I don't even have to share it with you. And isolate you from your family and friends so you're all alone in this new place that you're not familiar with and you have no support system. So if you go missing... No one will ever know or care. Yeah, it's like the opposite of a Jane Austen novel, both in in uh, in like uh, partners, loving partners, and in genre. You know, no one is getting murdered in a uh, Jane Austen novel, but a large portion of Jane Austen's novels are about marrying rich people for mm-hmm. being rich. Yeah. So the. The 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 thing with the machine, as yeah. I suspected, is not tied into either the murder plot or the fantastical plot. It's just part Correct. of his life. And so let's talk about the title of the film, which <laughs> when I when it was revealed how it was going to tie in when he first is like, oh, and, you know, you're going to get to see. The Crimson Peak, and she's like, "What? Why did you say that thing that haunts me every day and night?" <laughs> and he's like, "Well, it's you know when we pull up the sed- sediment or whatever it is, the the layer of the earth, the clay. Uh, it's you know it's like blood red, and we call it Crimson Peak. So that is the equivalent of a ghost coming to me because I was like." going to be murdered by a, a CEO someday, like who like works in an office building and coming to me and walk. being like, beware of laser jet. Because it's like, it's just a specific term from like a uh-huh. very technical line of work. It's a bad Like beware clue. of V lookups. It's, it's a bad Yeah, clue. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it is a bad clue. And field. why... <laughs> Yes, or the sharps. (laughs) Beware of sharps. Don't Um, date. (laughs) Don't leave Buffalo. Why her mother's ghost would know of Crimson Peak, except that it is a spooky name. Sure. Mm -hmm. But it is, um, I mean, it's a good title. It's a really good title for a spooky book or a spooky thing. Uh, And the visual that we end up getting with like this, these like blood red foot tracks and the way it just sort of spreads out from the house is like, amazing so weird and creepy and unusual so me a person who's completely misunderstanding the book i'm getting all excited (laughs) because i'm writing all these books in my head that i think it's gonna be right and at this point when that when he goes oh yeah crimson peak it's a very specific thing for my specific job i'm going this innocent man she has married is about to pull a horror up from the crust of the earth that (laughs) none of them can imagine uh wow wow Mm, it no, makes sense not it i mean <laughs> i mean that would be a different movie that would be a, an interesting movie of like cool you have a sister-in-law who just doesn't like you that's an unfortunate fact of life but now all three of you have to handle a cthulhu blood monster that has been dredged up mm-hmm. is that what you were thinking that basically i mean so okay. i was trying to figure out i thought i think it maybe was i like i had my 
my brain poisoned by cowboys and aliens. I was like, everything <laughs> is versus, you know, every, 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 everybody's always versus something else. And I was trying to figure out like, are the ghosts looking out because some other supernatural thing is going to come up from the crust of the earth? And like, you know, it, you know, it's a whoever wins, we lose type situation. Um, but, uh, da, 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 da. okay. The interiority in the book. Mm-hmm. I stand by my initial thing in the intro, which is that like I'm. It's a good book, fine. Like I, I, I didn't totally get it because I came at it from this weird angle. But, <laughs> but I do think the interiority assisted in pulling me away from realizing what was going on because there's such good uh, stuff regarding like Lucille and regarding all these characters. The moment where uh, Edith is talking to Lucille. And she offers something about her husband. And she, she, Edith thinks to herself, this is the moment when Lucille will give me something back about that same man. Because they grew up together and they have all these memories. And, you know, this will be like the currency that we exchange and, and, and how we build a relationship. And then she doesn't get it. And instead of the book going, there's something so obviously wrong with this woman, Edith's response is sort of, how do I get there? Like, how do I make this bridge with this woman? I want to have a beautiful relationship. I was too compelled by it to realize that there was other stuff going on. I mean, I, Lucille is a good character because of those things. Like, she, I kind of feel for her, you know? Like, she's in a bad situation. She's handled it poorly. She's not a well person. But, like, there's real sympathy. And, like, she feels so much love for her brother that she's mm-hmm. like, well, I don't want him to get hurt. I don't want him to fall in love. I'm taking care of him. Like, all of that is, you know, it makes it more interesting than if she was just a, like, raging harpy. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so much more interesting that she is so cognizant and thoughtful and plan. she plans so clearly what she's doing. Like, she's insane, of course. But <laughs> she's insane in such a way that, like, she's so smart and so, like, so much more of like the leader of the family than Thomas could ever be. And she knows that. And so she's taken on a lot of awful things. Like all of that is what makes her really a a cool villain. And that it's only revealed in the last whatever, like quarter that she's, she's the the villain Mm -hmm. more than anything else. Yeah. I think a lot of her, uh, (laughs) what she does in this film and book is I deserve it. I took all the Mm -hmm. hits. I uh, am the one killing everybody on our behalf. Um, you know, I, I'm doing all of the work. Uh, therefore, I deserve Thomas to be mine. And I deserve mm-hmm. that to happen by murdering his wives. And our mom. <laughs> yep. And their dad. Their, did their dad, did they kill their dad? I thought their dad died of like... Alcoholism. He had a hunting accident, ah. but the book makes it clear that she cut the straps on his saddle. You're right. You're right. I forgot about that. Yeah, they don't really I mean, she's just mention like a that at all ass. in the movie. They're just like, mm. no dad, dead mom. <laughs> and the flashback we get in the book is like, boy, what a bad situation these kids are in. Right. It, you know, like it. It really makes it so clear. Like, well, they ended up. Not it wasn't for fun that they ended up having sex in the attic, you know. Clearly, there's like larger family issues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the you, uh, Casey, you talked about the 
reveal that she is uh, the villain of the piece, Lucille, and uh, that's my favorite moment, is when uh, Edith goes, oh my god, you're not even siblings. And she's like, no, we're siblings who fuck. We definitely are siblings. (laughs) (laughs) And then pushes her over the railing, which is... That's great. Great. But to be given an out where you can be like, yeah, we just met. We like killing people and we're in love. My name's Pamela. We're brother and sister. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, it's like the... I think this is what I mean. Chastain's accent is not her strongest work in this movie, nobody's right? Is their but strongest she, work nobody's is. It's true. Foreman, she's the only one. <laughs> He's pulling it out for everybody, um, but she plays it so cold and calculating. Like she takes so much pleasure in being like, "He's my brother, and we fuck." That was my baby that I had. Like she's amazing. <laughs> you know what's interesting is. Um, my understanding from IMDb trivia, so I didn't do too hard research into this, is that <laughs> she was originally cast as Edith, and Benedict hmm. Cumberbatch was Thomas, and then I don't know if this was causation, correlation, or just like you know, it, it happened at the exact same time, but Benedict <laughs> Cumberbatch left, and she became she she wanted to be Lucille because she said it was more complex she was more interesting um I don't think that's why Benedict Cumberbatch left the project I think probably he was starting Marvel movies to be honest with you (laughs) um but that would have been crazy weird to see them as sibling lovers um and I think that I was a I am a big Cumberbatch fan and I even was in 2015 and I think like he could pull it off but in a very different way to be like Mm -hmm. yes I'll do whatever my sister says he just doesn't seem to have that like Mm -hmm. weakness there's something in their relationship that really feels like Tom Hiddleston is playing it so submissive Mm -hmm. and he has like such big eyes and he's like a very like pretty boy Mm Um, that it works. And I feel like the if with Cumberbatch, I imagine it being much more like a sexy game. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Of like push and pull, the which would be fun. The horniness of this book would have come out more if 2015 <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch was in it because he, mm-hmm. I think he looks very handsome, but he also looks like a snake. So he, yep. I mean, or at least he's portrayed that way. I think he's very handsome, but he looks unusual. Um, so he has to like really come in with that sex appeal, even in that he's been in other period pieces where he really is like ramping up the sex appeal. I don't think that's the way he thinks about it, but it's the way I think about (laughs) it, um, in order to like really sell a more submissive point of view, you know, it's, it's Mm -hmm. odd. It's just so That would have been very interesting. Yeah. The, the thing about Cumberbatch is I can't picture him in a mansion where it's snowing indoors? Oh, I can. <laughs> He's oh, a straight up weirdo. I'm kidding I because love it. there's a little guy named Stephen Strange who has the exact same oh, aesthetic. Oh, right. I see. Oh, yeah. I see. Oh, I boy. have uh, fallen behind on <laughs> the gotcha. Marvel stuff, so I. That's over my head, reason, but I get it. For some <laughs> reason, recent Marvel is like. Doctor Strange can have anything going on in his mansion. Like, he is like controls whatever. Magic. His magic. He always goes for snow. It's a metaphor. Just like ghosts. It's a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> there is a passage about Alan that I want to read. Oh, great. Where 
so like in in the movie like i like alan i think he's nice but there was this one part early in the book where he's talking about her writing and their connection um her willfulness indicated that Edith had a mind of her own, and he did like her mind. She was a prodigious wit and very creative, too. He was a man of science, not given to flights of fancy such as hers. He'd loved hearing her read passages from her book so long ago, but had never known exactly what to say in response. I like it had always sounded so weak. <laughs> and like the fact that like what wins Edith over is Thomas being like, your book is really good, <laughs> and having like active feedback for mm-hmm. her, um, and that Alan just like doesn't have the vocabulary for it. Yeah. But feels the same. Like, by the time we got to the end, and they're kind of, like, she's decided maybe she can love him, and they might end up together. I was like, he loves your work. He loves you. He is going to do, he's going to give you everything you need and you thought you could get from Thomas. Maybe you need to, like, teach him how to say those things. Like, he's not a language guy, but, like, he feels it. And that was so compelling to me. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, this is... I love, um, I mean, in general, characters who, like, feel a lot but have a hard time saying it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, oh, I love it. And to have that, like, made explicit about Alan in this book, I was so pleased. He was much more of a character in the book than in the movie. Yes. Yes. Oh, so much, yeah. (laughs) And in the movie, he's like, look at my creepy cameras for my my ghosty pictures. (laughs) I I kind of like you. And then... (laughs) movie he's like i did everything i sacrificed my life to come see you i did i feel like the first half of the movie he has barely anything he's just like mother don't say something rude and look at my creepy ghosty pictures and then that's it we have no other development with him and the book is so much about i know edith i love edith this is everything i remember about edith here is our history i notice things about her which is much more concrete then I mm-hmm. also know you. He like the the creepy ghost pictures. He only brings because he thinks she would be interested because she likes ghost. She has this ghost story mm-hmm. yes. for him. Like, and that he saves her books when they're yeah. selling everything in the house in the book. I was like, he cares so much, <laughs> and he knows what matters to her. Mm-hmm. There's a very funny moment in the book where she he's showing her the ghost pictures, and she basically thinks, wait. But he knows I have a ghost story, I believe. So is this mocking or is he fully (laughs) endorsing it? Like, she's not considering, like, he's showing it because it's a shared interest. She's going, he has decided whether my ghost story is true or false. And which is it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, talk about misinterpreting what's happening. Edith, like, doesn't understand what's happening with Alan. At all. all. She has, like, a a different idea of what they're communicating to each other. Um, I did think that that was you responding to me making a comment. Was you going, talk about misinterpreting what's happening. Oh, no, no. (laughs) It was a comment about you misinterpreting a lot of stuff in the book, but... (laughs) Right. But in this case, I I wasn't the one. For once, a fictional character did it. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of the... Alan not being great with language or feedback, and uh, why am I forgetting the main man's name? Thomas. 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 Thomas Sharp. Thomas uh, being better at that. In the book, I don't know how it was on the page, the audiobook narrator, who's fine, um, she, when she speaks as men, she does sound like Elizabeth Holmes, for every single man, and it's not it's not the best work I've heard. Um, and um, when she did the part 
that was Thomas breaking Edith's heart. I'm doing air quotes because I think this part of the story is a little weak sauce. In, in the in the in the audiobook, he does it. And I'm like, yeah, that's a little mean, but like she is taking it like she was shot in the chest. And then I watch the movie, and Hiddleston delivers that. Basically, like, I hate you. I'm going to eat your heart. I'm the murderer at the end of this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everybody's mm-hmm. watching. That was the best part, was that all of these people were so rude and were like, let me follow them <laughs> to the stairwell Just to the most listen. humiliating thing in the world. It was very un- Though she is the lady of the house, she got up. That's that is a thing at dinner in an Edwardian home. The lady of the house gets up, you follow. Um, oh my god! So Terrible. I take it all back. It's not weird now. <laughs> it is a moment of like you need his delivery to really feel like that would hurt her. Yeah, because like he's saying mean things. Yes, but like. You're right. It's so vitriolic. And Hiddleston's really good at that. Like, that's what makes Loki good, is, like, when he turns on that, like, really nasty anger. Yes. Um, and it's fun to see that peek through knowing what Thomas is capable of, which is mostly allowing other people to get murdered. But still nasty stuff. Yeah. Speaking of, of that, I, something I did love about the book is all the descriptions of how sick the tea was making her feel. Because I feel like in the mm-hmm. movie, she's mostly fine. And then she's like, <laughs> oh, I don't feel so good. And and it's, it's, I think it was much more careful about her being periodically poisoned and mm-hmm. what that does to somebody and how she could misinterpret it as something else. Um, I thought that was really interesting and gave a little more, because frankly... At the end of that movie, it didn't matter if she was being poisoned because they were going to beat her to death. <laughs> like, I'm not really sure why you're poisoning her at all. You're just going to stab the shit out of her. Probably to make it harder for her to escape, right? Like if she yeah. wises up or anything. Um, so but quick, it's a good point. Broken leg. <laughs> Worked fine. They're like really I mean, it covering like the other faces. three women were successfully poisoned to death. Yeah. Yeah. And because the ghost points Edith towards their incest and she catches them in the act, they have to stop her sooner. Mm-hmm. So they shove her off of a balcony. Well, and that makes more <laughs> sense in the book. I'm just saying in the mm-hmm. movie, again, no element of time. We don't see her like throwing up blood ever. We don't see her or hear her inner thoughts about like, I feel like my insides are on fire. They don't talk about mm-hmm. the fire thorn tea is the blah, blah, blah. Um, the poisoning doesn't seem to affect her very much in the movie, full stop. And yes, mm-hmm. I think that the book is much clearer that, like, no, this is how they usually do it, and it is affecting her, but they just mm-hmm. didn't do it enough. Yeah, even in, like, the last section where she's running through the snow in her nightgown, like, in the movie, she's fine. Even though her leg is busted, she's running around pretty okay. And the book is so clear that she's like, I'm in pain. I'm exhausted. This is so hard. This is yeah. awful. My body's collapsing underneath me. But if I stop, we'll all die. Yeah, I really did need this ghost to distract her. Because in <laughs> yes. the movie, she probably could have kept going for, like, a couple more minutes. Um, if mm-hmm. the ghost... Also, I love in both versions where she's like, help me. And he, do- he doesn't do anything. <laughs> 
Nope. It's just there. <laughs> and Lucille's like, oh shit, a ghost. If Lucille was like, I'm not turning around, I'm not stupid, this would not work. Yeah. It, it's. Come on, Thomas, try harder. Yeah, do something, ghosty. Appear in front of her. <laughs> or like, move. Distract the part more. in the book where yeah. um the part in the book where uh, Edith makes Thomas tea is so funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Edith is like, "I made you tea. I love you, husband." And Thomas is like, "Um, I don't think I, I don't think I want the tea." Yeah, <laughs> which tea? She, she, she's thinking in her head. She's thinking, oh, he's such a nice man, but there is." apparently some real British elitism about tea. I mean, I'd always heard this, but I'm seeing it anecdotally right now. And then he's like, which tin did you make it in? And she goes, I don't really remember. And he's like, I'm, I make my own tea, but thank you. <laughs> I, I mean, in the movie, when they make her the first pot of poison tea, he's very involved in the process and is very down to poison her to death. I feel like in the book, he's way less into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, he's way less involved in the poison. And when Lucille says, like, it doesn't matter, the porridge is poisoned too, like, he is aghast mm-hmm. Yeah, in the book. He's like, I eat porridge every morning. It makes me feel okay when I can't have my tea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like they were really specific in the book of, like, this cup that looks like this is the one that the poison goes in. So don't even accidentally make yourself a regular tea in this one, just in case there's traces of stuff around it. There's so much poison in that cup and this kettle. This is basically a lead cup. <laughs> and then when, like, Edith is looking at the photographs of the other women and is like, same teacup! Mm-hmm. Like, that tracks a lot more than, like, also tea. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's... So much of this is just the element of time, and I I don't know how I would if I would if I would solve it in the movie because it's not a short movie, and it's a hard sell either way. <laughs> the movie really, uh, I I'm misremembering if this is part of the book too, but the movie really hands her the answers when she starts looking for clues, like those. There's like what recordings of people literally being like, "It was poisoned tea." <laughs> It's it's not it's not the, yeah. the most sleuthy I've ever seen. I mean, I think the recordings in the book are different. Like she has the recordings, but like in the movie there's one of Pamela and Thomas talking to each other and it's kind of cute. And then it's there's one of Pamela where she's like, I don't feel good and something's wrong and I think these people are killing me. And in the book, you get one from Enola that's like, I am being poisoned. I have a baby that is in danger. Yes. I am absolutely being murdered by these two people. And it's much more explicit. I mean, can you imagine poor Enola, who's like Italian, who's like, okay, a baby appears out of nowhere. I don't feel well to begin with. (laughs) There's a baby now. It's fucked up as hell. And my sister-in-law is like, take care of it. And you think like, if I take care of the baby, do I get to live? Like, good God, what an awful situation. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's girl. another thing that's a little cons- confusing is when Lucille's like, she knows everything now. And it's like, well, based on what we heard from Pamela and Enola, it sounds like they also knew everything now and you didn't throw them <laughs> off the balcony. <laughs> Women are smart. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's like they, they got to do a slow death. Now we got to throw Edith <laughs> off the balcony. <laughs> 
Edith has made it pretty clear that she wants to leave and will walk out the front door the first chance she gets. Maybe the other women were, like, not quite as willing to just up and go. Or maybe they found out a little later in the poisoning. Mm -hmm. The shot in the movie where she does walk out the front door is, like, it's just full-on hateful eight. It's like, go back inside. (laughs) I don't care who's in there. That is bad winter. Mm -hmm. I really like how, I mean, in the movie, she opens the door. It's too cold. It's too snowy. And she retreats back to the staircase and passes out. I love in the book that she's like, I'm going to go for it. And really takes, like some trudging steps out the door before passing out in the snow. Charlie Hunnam spent four hours walking through that. Yeah, they skipped his poor toes. You know what's wild to me that the book kind of made reference to is that they were like, oh, you Americans have no idea about Cumberland winters. And I was like, she's from Buffalo. It's yeah. a lot of really harsh winters. <laughs> she borders Canada. Like, it's just it's absolutely yeah, the, the horrible winds winters. off the lakes. Yeah, I was like, they're either comparable or worse. She's literally in the place, or she's from the place that's in the news all the time, where they're like, we have been snowed into our home. The, the snow is eight feet high. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and there's, there's many sunken boats beneath the ice in the lake. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's has a watery, corpsey death in these lakes in the winter. You know, it's it's it was just an interesting like uh, reference made. Even though we do have the specifics, you know, like if she was from like Atlanta, or even I'm trying to think of like another not so northern place, like even like Idaho or something. Where they certainly New have York winter. City. Even yeah, even if she was from New York City, even though we have we have cold winters, the the fact that the it's buildings are so close snow. together, you get a lot of snow, but you don't get you don't get buffalo snow, you know, unless it's a real yeah. freak situation. Um, yep. <laughs> it was just like it's literally like <laughs> the worst. No, it's literally like the worst possible choice. I agree with you. It's like it doesn't make any sense to choose that as a specific. I do wonder, like, what's the thought process behind Buffalo? Is it just that the Guillermo del Toro was like, I want a place that's not a major city, but is still has culture. And he's Mexican and was like, uh, this one? Yeah. And his co-writer was like, sure. Like, I, I really wonder. I think it was what really happening process. in 1901. I think it was mm-hmm. pretty um, industrial. It's like a bustling it's yeah. like where you could have a mansion that isn't butting up against another mansion. I think that's really mm-hmm. probably the motivation of it's it's in the north in the 1900s, which means that it probably has a lot of money in it. Uh, and also now he can come to her house and be like, no one saw the carriage. <laughs> Whereas like, if it was in New York, it's like literally everyone's staring out their windows looking at you. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Buffalo. What a choice. What a treat. I kind of wish there was a moment where she was like, this is fine. I'll just put on my boots. I can get through yeah, this. I've done just, this. She really didn't pack. <laughs> so the, the body's in the basement. Something we yeah. haven't really touched on. The, the red stuff is the stuff that is Crimson Peak. It's the stuff pulled up from the ground. It's the clay. And they just, their idea of disposing of the bodies of these women is just to drop them in clay and then that's it forever. And then they're just there forever. And the clay remains like viscous and doesn't solidify. And you can just reach in and touch a body and they just keep them there for years. 
I guess yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, I I was wondering with the vats. I'm like, is this a system where... Because in order for, for clay to be hard and really become a tile, it needs to be fired. So mm-hmm. I guess you theoretically could have moisture in it forever and it would be able to be viscous as long as you made sure it was moist. I don't know if mm-hmm. the idea was that it was so moist in that room that all the time it was going to be viscous or if they were actively pumping water into it. I mean, I don't know how bacteria breaks down bodies in clay. So maybe they were like, let's like leave this one long enough. They'll decompose into nothing. What? Well, yeah, I was going to say that the, the science of it is less concerning to me than the fact that it just seems like some of the worst murder cover-up possible it's like because you're just keeping the bodies and they're not like obviously you're not like letting people into your basement because you're like we have bodies down there but like if someone (laughs) did get down there they're not even really under stuff you could just touch them shocking is not so much that they put the bodies in the vats which i probably wouldn't just go scrounging around in period but that they didn't dump enola's trunk or do something that's wild they just kept all of her shit (laughs) like yeah and she died two or three years ago at least like they had time it's not like they brought edith in like two days after they killed enola and they didn't have time to get rid of any of her stuff maybe not two or three years because the dog is still running around but like relatively they had some time to at least like put the trunk also in a vat or like push it in a tunnel or something one thing i have to say for this vat situation there are a lot of real stories about people putting bodies in barrels so Mm -hmm. that's not unheard of for me it's not i still think it's a bad idea for everybody murder's bad by the way um (laughs) but i have heard of such things and it's not Aside from being a bad idea for murdering people, it's also not a bad, uh, it's also a bad idea because there have been stories about people getting caught because of DNA in the barrel, and there was one person in particular who they discovered who she was because she used to work at a fake plant factory, and they found fibers of, like, the foam core stuff, and did that, it was, Mm. they caught the guy. Um, so the, the, the that part, I think, has some kind of basis in reality not in being a smart idea but in being an (laughs) idea um i could also imagine like okay the ground is hard enough that you need mechanical digging equipment to really get down into mm -hmm. it so maybe doing like earth top six foot deep burials is not realistic for these two wispy british people right well and they're also at least if if i am to believe that the consistency would be the same as what we see in the movie. They're like, the machine's like digging it out and it's almost like dough, like bread dough, mm-hmm. where it's like catching it, but then the next one below it catches more of it and this, that, and the other. So even if you tried to bury a body in that, it's not staying put. Yeah, and it might be good enough to put it as deep as you can get it, which is in the underground vats, so that maybe when and if the bones get dug up, you'd be like, boy, people have been dying on this land for a million years. Who knows what those yeah, bodies are? Yeah, they were are. skeletons <laughs> when they floated up to the surface. And this yeah. is there's no DNA an- analysis in 1901. It's not like a bog where you're preserved. just like captured in the bog, preserved forever. Yeah. 
clearly something's eating up the bodies in the vats. Yeah, some kind of... Uh, maybe they're just going through the regular decomposition process because, you know, we don't think of it as clay, but, like, our at a certain point in graveyards, isn't a lot of the ground clay, and if you're not decomposed and you're not in an airtight container, you can fully decompose into the ground. I think so. I so. You have a natural this burial. This has just become a podcast about how to get away with murder. <laughs> uh, get have a, some clay pits under your well, house. I get a giant it's more environmentally friendly to have a hours away burial, from. okay? I'm very interested yeah. in it. Pine box, please. I think about it a lot. There's, they're composting people now, and it's only legal in one wow. state, and I'm like, that's what I would want. I would want... And it only takes, like, 30 days to Yikes. be fully composted. Wow. I think it's really cool, but it's not legal <laughs> outside of, like, Oregon or something like that. I just want to go back to the earth. I don't want to be trapped in a metal box for eternity. Like, that seems and awful. Those I think I want to be lit on fire. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. I, I respect I cremation. Do you want a yeah. pyre situation or full <laughs> professional cremation? I would like to live in such a way that I am killed and burned publicly. <laughs> mm. And I think that it would be nice for... Because, like a witch. Like if we bring back witch trials. Yeah, I don't want to be burned alive, to be clear. Okay, okay. got it. But I would like to have like a end of Mad Max Fury Road thing where my body is carried into an arena and people start cheering. <laughs> and then, and then you know, because that means that I live dangerously. And then, uh, as I'm burning, my last revenge will be the terrible stench. <laughs> well, not to rain on your well, parade, Andrew, but uh-huh. um, I am good. I am a follower uh, on YouTube of Ask a Mortician of Caitlin Doty, and she she worked in a crematory. And a big reason that we have crematories is because normal fire can't get up to the heat to basically kill all organic matter in your body. So even if okay. you're burned in an open pyre or in a public place, there's still a lot of bones there and a lot of like mm. f- organic matter. So you're not like done cooking. And that's part of why, cause a uh, crematory mm. can get up to a s- certain heat that she's very interesting video about what happens to your body through the process. And it still has to go on for hours. Um, so unless you're in a con- Contained crematorium in public, it's probably not going to get hot enough to do what you want. Somebody's still going to have to pick up all those little bone yeah, bits. Yeah, and then they have so to blend the bone fillings. bits when they're done. <laughs> in defense of the siblings from Crimson Peak, yeah. disposing of bodies is hard. Yeah. Drop them in whatever giant tub of liquid you have. <laughs> because yeah. fully getting rid of them, it's a whole thing. Yeah. And little did they know that those ghosts would be goopy. That's true. You know, they didn't know. Leaving trails everywhere. Yeah. So, oh, the, the ghosts. That's something I, I definitely want to talk about. Early mm-hmm. on in the book, I'm trying to figure out what kind of a story this is, what kind of a supernatural story this is. There's all these ghosts. There's people or, you know, specters watching people, chapters from the perspective of ghosts and Ghosts are just a reality of this world. They are not specific to the people murdered by these people, right? Right. Meaning Which there is are why ghosts her mother, elsewhere. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'd Which is why her mother yes. is like around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I just don't understand why her mother is involved in this at all. And I don't understand why her father isn't. And it's... It, it, I feel like it makes more sense if you're like, you know, these people are such an embodiment of evil. 
that they're like generating ghosts with their kills who are coming back to be like, our unfinished business is stop these people. Well, I, I think that Edith's mother's unfinished business or whatever high emotion that keeps her around is taking care of her daughter. Mm-hmm. But she is kind of linked to her own house. So she can't travel to Cumberland with Edith. So maybe Edith's father would be a ghost, but Edith leaves so fast, there's no chance for him to reach out to her. And while she's in Allerdale Hall, there's like four ghosts who have been brutally murdered in that house who have business. Mm-hmm. Who are then able to commune with her. And he shows up next to his machine, and that, in addition to making sure Edith doesn't get murdered, that's also unfinished business in his life. His machine? Was getting that machine. He going. never got that thing totally working. Does that answer your question, Andrew? Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah. I, I guess I'm I think just these not are used pretty to that. traditional ghost mythologies that are being presented here. I don't think there's any like new ideas about how ghosts work. I think many people believe, and the fact is, whether or not ghosts are real is very much a debate, and not like there's. I don't know how I feel about it, but there's no like scientist who's like, yes, ghosts, hundred um, <laughs> yeah. percent, no questions, um, lots of questions. But I got the, jars of ectoplasm. Yes. So the <laughs> my understanding is that one philosophy is that ghosts are attached to places and demons are attached to people. So mm. if her mom was a demon, the demon could follow her to Allerdale Hall. But because she's a ghost, she's going to be in the house. Right. Yes. That yeah, makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I think I've read some of those books by the Warrens, and they are very clear about the behavior of demons. I think the thing that just always bugs me about ghost realities, and is that like, well, you're a notorious skeptic. I'm a notorious atheist and a skeptic. I'm an atheist and well, I identify as agnostic because I find everything uh, equally unknowable, but. such a thing such a thought compels you to pursue nothing so um the da, 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 more about my beliefs no i'm kidding um <laughs> the 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 thing about the yeah, ghosties about and ghoulies. ghost realities in fiction is that i just have trouble with the idea <laughs> that there's like ghosts from these serial killers in one place and also the ghost of her mother just just a just a profusion of ghosts and then uh, still skeptics within the world that they just aren't accepted as reality. Well, only certain people can see them. That's what Alan was saying. You have to be open to them. This mm-hmm. is this is a very Victorian concept of ghosts, actually. Okay. And especially in this intermediary period where we're transitioning more fully into the more modern Edwardian scientific mindset. Like, very much so, they had these ideas that were like, you have to be open to it. And if you close your mind to ghosts, you can't see them. You have to invite them in. You have to open yourself to them. So, like, every time Edith is like, show me, I believe in you, make a sign. Like, that's a very Victorian concept of, like, how to engage with ghosts. Mm-hmm. Which is why seances were so popular. And, like, they bring up Arthur Conan Doyle, who was, like, a full believer in this shit, who, like, did seances, believed in fairies, like, took photographic evidence and was like, it's fact. Um, And so much of that is about, like, when people experience grief and you don't want to let it go, like, you're so emotionally raw and open and volatile that these, these things, ghosts or whatever 
you're sort of like in the liminal zone between their world and your own. Mm -hmm. And so you have more ability to engage with them and interact with them if you are open to it and believe in it. So the argument that like, well, skeptics never see this stuff. Yeah, they don't believe in it. So they couldn't. Right, right. Uh, And it all sort of feeds into itself that way. But it's very much like of the time period, particularly. That's interesting. So I'm the guy not seeing the ghosts that are very real now because of Mm -hmm. my skepticism. Yeah. And that like Thomas and Lucille don't really see them, but have a sense of them. Because I think they know that what they're doing is so bad that it's causing bad in the world. And I just, I, I feel like we're past this this point in the conversation, but I just want to say, there's something <laughs> seriously wrong that they've had to do this four times. Yeah, they're, they're bad terrible. at business. And, and they're so recently. That's the but, thing I was confused. I was like, the dog, did they spend all of Enola's money in like a month? <laughs> they are terrible at this. If you... Stopped trying to make the three machines work and stop trying to crimson peak your way to fortune. You could just keep one of the fortunes. Mm-hmm. This is the problem, the though, is they can't like Edith says, like, let's move out. Like, let's find an apartment in Paris. Right. Right. And live within the means that I have. And But they can't. They can't leave the house. They refuse. It's like the only thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's a lot of ways they could have a very nice life with just one murder. But they don't because they, they feel like they need the money and the wealth to be who they are meant to be. Right. I'm trying to find in the book the dates of the three women because they list the years it that is, they were. It is um, 18. Flipping, flipping, flipping. Uh, this is just off the dome. It might be completely wrong. But it is mm-hmm. like 1865, 1869, 1874. They like cover about 10 years as I think as it would three. be It has to 80s. be later than that. I think that. it would start in oh, the 80s. Seven, but I think maybe it's 70s like to 60. 80s. <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe there is, every time I see those dates, I'm like, how old is he? Like, what are we right. doing? When the, did they start this? The thing I just remember about it is that it spans oh, I found like them. about a decade. Oh, okay. so, oh, wow. Pamela Upton, 1887. Margaret McDermott, 1893. Uh, Enola Shoddy, 1896. So, okay. let's, And then we're in 1901 now with Edith, right? Yeah. So if they keep Enola around for like a year, waiting to see if it works, plus the shit with the baby, then kill her. There's still an extra three years in there. Did they keep the dog for a while? And eventually Lucille was like, fuck that dog. Get it out the of here. The dog is the real question mark on that. It's just like, <laughs> mm-hmm. did this dog just live in the mountains for three years? And it looks I much nicer in the, the movie dog. than in the book. Yeah, for sure. I wonder if they keep the dog as a pet and then they're like, okay, we're going to America. We're going to be gone for like six months. Fuck this dog. Kill it. <laughs> Maybe. And Lucille, who has, like, no care for life, like, life at all, is just like, I don't want to have to, like, leave it with someone in town. Kill the dog. Let it go. That makes sense. I don't know. It is a question. Do we think that why they have to do it three times is that they've failed at getting the money transferred three times? Maybe? Because there's nothing, nothing looks like they spent money on it. There's still a hole in the roof. (laughs) Right. This machine... I mean, it looks like not cheap, but not, you know, what would be maybe $3 million in in today's (laughs) money at the least. Yeah, I wonder if they're like um, only now being like, we can't kill her until she signs the paper. (laughs) God, they're stupid. It's really amusing to imagine this couple as essentially like a modern couple who 
have like a spending addiction and massive credit card debt and and having them have that that flip-flop of that people go through where they're like oh we have to get money we have to get money then you get the money and they're just like let's fucking spend i love spending let's do it like it's very funny to imagine they do horrific things and then they're just like everything's chill everything's super chill yeah, I just wish we knew what they spent it on because Lucille's dresses are very specifically Victorian and not Edwardian, mm-hmm. and it right. makes it implies that she hasn't gotten a new dress in like ten years. But where where is this money? Like, what did you spend it on? Where is it going? You don't have more servants. There's a hole in the roof. Like, what are you going to stay in London for the weekend a thousand times? <laughs> Like, what is what is going on that it's there's nothing not like oh well you know we blew it all on clothes <laughs> you know <laughs> this is really like the the sort of conversation I think you only have when you've spent this much time talking about right. it because like I never really thought about it that much I was like right they're spending money and it's not really keep it up it's not enough to keep up with the upkeep of the house whatever got it no problem and then you're like wait a second wait a, four times Four They're- times you have left, <laughs> and they were all horrifically rich. Um, the there should be a line at the end of this movie where she's like, "You killed four women for this, like millions of dollars and blah blah blah." And and he's like, "Would you believe this is the house after millions of dollars? We've been <laughs> renovating." <laughs> Hey, we have heated water. That's, That's huge. That's true. We got indoor plumbing. Um, I wonder. That if- was the first wife's money. <laughs> There's a dumb waiter. That's right. I wish that they had like one line where they were like, "Not only did our father spend all the money, he also accrued so much debt." Like if they were like, "And yes. we're still in debt." Like that <laughs> might just- explain something. It's the ultimate villain motivation, just hand wave, to just be like, some stand-in for the mafia is after them. Right? It works in, like, any any genre. Or, like, we're paying off the detective in town because we're so bad at hiding the murders. Yes. Like, we are being blackmailed constantly, and so we need a constant influx of money. Ah, yeah. Burn Gorman Uh. is around every corner. <laughs> I love that Bird Gorman is in this movie. I wish he was in more of it. I love the part. Uh, I, I think it's just in the book, right? Where uh, in the scene where Hunnam is talking to Gorman and he's like, Gorman's like, you know, this really goes against a lot of my a lot of my ethics to give a former <laughs> client's information to someone who's just asking for it. Why should I do it? And Hunnam goes, okay, a couple reasons. First of all, I already paid you for it. Second of all, I traveled <laughs> here to get it. And third of all, I will beat you until you give it to me. And then <laughs> the narration goes, he considered all these reasons and then handed over the documents. <laughs> well, that's the, he has a good point because essentially he's like, oh, why would I give uh, you all the information? It's like, okay, I'll give you money to do the exact same thing you did for Cushing and just then give it to me. Is that the loophole you need? Yeah. Is that I want you to yeah. investigate the same people? Like what? Again. I'm saving you legwork, buddy. The, yeah, the the other good point that he makes is just bring this up earlier. This is a terrible way to <laughs> <Yes>. conduct business. <laughs> Bern Gorman 
like really chewing on that tiny role of like, I'm a scuzzy detective, (laughs) but I have a real moral code and I value loyalty. Just delightful. What do we just think of the Chastain performance? We haven't really discussed her that much. I liked her. I think that Lucille in total loses a lot in the movie based on what I've now read in the book. Mm -hmm. I think that Jessica Chastain is a very capable, wonderful actor who has been given all the subtext and absolutely no text. I think she's good. I think she struggles with the accent. I think her extremely strong jawline is like not suited to British gentry. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, I think it would be fun if Lucille was played by a very delicate British girl, Mm -hmm. like a real wayfish sort of like little sister yeah who then is like no i'm a fucking murderer that's what i do and chastain is like clearly like a strong yes murder i'm scary hi (laughs) she is immediately scary and sinister um it's not her fault it's her face it's a great face um but there could be a little bit more mystery and reveal Mm -hmm. i think with lucille i think so Uh, i i have basically the opposite stance to casey in, in regards that like just because I had such a weird experience with this book, I actually think that having less of what's going on in her head and less about her made her more, I don't know, coded her better as like a villain. Whereas in the book, you knew she was a villain going in. I I just felt like she was crazy interesting. I don't know. I got too wrapped up in the interpersonal stuff. I really wanted to know why this normal man wouldn't fuck his wife. I was really invested in that. (laughs) (laughs) And then you get one heck of an answer, huh? I mean, but the normal man part slips away. So (laughs) it's it's, it's a (laughs) trade-off. And he does eventually fuck his wife. I... I may tag uh, Hannah at a later date as bonus content on this episode. We should just do an intro where I I have you read the plot synopsis of what I thought this book was. <laughs> just a normal authorized yeah. intro where I'm like, welcome to authorized. And then you're just like, this is a love story. That's normal, but ghosts. <laughs> Maybe there's a giant monster waiting to emerge <laughs> from beneath the peak. <laughs> bring up a good point about what does make a good villain and what doesn't because I as an acting teacher um, something that I think (laughs) uh, what I like about Jessica Chastain which is why I say it's hard for me to judge her performance because there I find there's more subtext than text is it's the goal of the actor in collaboration with the director and everything but it's the job of the actor to go like why is this happening And I would say, based on the performance I watched today after reading the book, it was like she had the book before she did it. But we, the audience watching the movie, don't have the book. So it's like, oh yeah, this woman's cuckoo bananas. Um, A lot's going on. She's super manipulative. I get that she's doing it. And I get that she thinks it's right. I'm just not given any of the text to explain it. So yes. Jess- mm-hmm. it's like it's like Jessica Chastain is doing a good silent performance and I love whenever yes. she completely loses her mind in the in the latter quarter of the movie and is being super violent and I think she's really good at, as in general as an actor of being really visceral and in it and highly energized but I wish as an audience member they would have elaborated on their abuse more or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
There is that detail in the book that I think is not in the movie where Lucille will say like, well, you did that when it was her, that she will just like gaslight him so hard to the point where he believes it. And is like, well, I guess I did do something wrong. And like that level of her self-justifying of like, well, Edith did this to me, so Edith needs to be punished. Edith hurt my relationship. Edith took him from me in ways that like, she just straight up did not. There's a couple where it's like, well, you killed him, Edith. And she's like, I fucking didn't. I literally did that. You stabbed him. (laughs) You literally did that. Um, Like adds that level of like, just additional information that really helps Lucille like come together. I agree. Hannah Blackman. You are going to your local coffee shop. Okay. You see a cute boy on a laptop writing his novel. You skim a single line of the novel. (laughs) It is Uh the novelization of Crimson Peak. Based Mm -hmm. on this, would you marry this man? Also known as would you recommend (laughs) this book? Yeah, no, I, I get it. Um, uh, for the would listener, I marry the not man? for you. I don't think if... you're stupid. No, I know. It's okay. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, if the man was Thomas Sharp, I would probably marry him mm-hmm. based on one nice interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Wait, I'm going to revise it. What if it's the most neutral looking man you've ever seen <laughs> and the book fully is informing whether you're going to okay. marry him or not? <laughs> um, I would certainly go on some dates, you know? I would try him out. I, I do like this book. I do wonder how it reads without the information from the movie, which, Andrew, it sounds like you had a less good experience without the movie first. Yes, but, um, but this is fully mm-hmm. an issue with my audiobook thing. I don't think this would have happened if I was turning physical pages. Okay. I mean, we have many times discussed that an audiobook is sometimes hard to grasp mm-hmm. if you're a certain type of person. Uh, which I think you and I both are. <laughs> yes, but yeah. Yeah, but uh, no, I like this book. I had a good time reading it. I think it is, it adds to the movie and it's a movie I already really like. So to have a little bit more information, a little bit more character development and to just spend a little more time in the world was very fun for me. So I would say like, if you like gothic stuff, if you have read books and want to read like basically an homage to that, um, I think this is very successful. We haven't even talked about the creepy butterfly stuff, which I think is really rich throughout the book that like you really get the feeling like, oh, Edith is a butterfly to be devoured by these dark moths. Yeah. Like that is so much clearer in the book. It's like a nice little motif. Um, there's just all sorts of like fun little recurring threads like that in the book that are really make the experience... Um, it's not just rote. Mm-hmm. Re- this, you know, Nancy Holder really did something with this book, and I liked it. So I would recommend it if you like this kind of thing, and especially if you really like the movie. It's a fun, you know, it's fun. We can't have a sequel. You can read the book. Casey Miko, my darling Casey, you are landed gentry <laughs> in England. You got a great ass house. It rocks. However, it's going through kind of a hard time, you know? And what you decide to do is marry Rich and then kill him. And you think that's going to really solve your financial problem? You know, so you go to a major European city. You find somebody who doesn't have a whole ton going on in their life, but they're hecker rich. You marry him, you bring him home. And then he comes to you and is like, hey, have you read this book, Crimson Peak? I really like it. You should give it a read. 
Upon reading this book, would you then decide that you shouldn't murder this guy? Is the book so good that the recommendation would sway you? I would, based on reading this novel, I would enjoy it so much that I might be a little more interested in the person I was married to because I think they would have recommended something to me that I really enjoyed. And also, I've learned that the best case scenario for me in this situation is to become a spooky ghost, and I don't want that. <laughs> so I would probably decide not to murder my new uh, landed gen. Now he's also landed gentry <laughs> husband, um, and also because he is a man in the Edwardian era, can still yield more cash. So it would be mm. best to my interest to keep this cash cow alive. Yeah, it's not quite an equivalent scenario to what's <laughs> happening here due to that gender disparity. Right, unfortunately. Oh, God. Uh, so, yes, I would highly recommend this book because I did like the movie beforehand. And reading this book actually made me wish there were things from the book in the movie, which mm -hmm. I think uh, would... M means it can actually stand on its own quite well. Um, and I think anything that makes me want more of something that I already liked is successful in in its execution. Yeah, that, I mean, that's straight across the plate, like one of the things novelizations <laughs> are made for, you know? Mm -hmm. Give you something a little more what you already like. Yeah, and Spooky Yuki Boys. Like, I love a Spooky yeah. Yuki Boy. Um... <laughs> Oh, okay, uh, Andrew. Hello. I love this. I love guest initiative like this. <laughs> oh, I don't know if it's going to come. Feel free to cut it out if it ends up this way. Mine wasn't great, so just go for it. No it's one can ever awesome. top me. It's fine. You, <laughs> um, you schmuck. You have. You are a dead person. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Casey, go for uh, it. <laughs> you have pined after your childhood sweetheart for years. Years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And she has passed you right on by. Thought maybe, we were doing scenarios. <laughs> well, maybe it's because hey. of your budding optometry practice. And you've just <laughs> not been able to dedicate the... Um, or you have not uh, um, appeared the Prince Charming, as one might think, because optometry's nerdy. Uh, <laughs> and she departs across the ocean to uh, marry a spooky Yuki boy. Mm -hmm. And you don't feel too hot about this spooky Yuki boy. You might have uh, abandoned your love for her if he wasn't so darn spooky. But something doesn't sit well with you. And you, you uh, make your way to Cumberland and a storm is a Bruin and an old Scottish man, for some reason in Cumberland, maybe he has a northern accent, tells you it's not <laughs> worth marching there in the snow right now. It'll take many, many hours. Why don't you sit down and read this book instead? And he hands you the novelization <laughs> of Crimson Peak. And before you head out, you read this book. Would this book make you value your own life enough to stay in that little town? Wow, so the, if the recommendation of the book is tantamount to abandoning <laughs> my years-long unrequited love. Yes, because right. I said it backwards, yeah. but yes. <laughs> yes, I think I would recommend it and therefore commit to dying alone, um, uh, unloved and unthought of. Uh, I 
had a rough time with this book, but I think that if you have seen the movie and you read the physical book, that this is really well done. And it's very vibrant. It, it like, really colors in... Uh, it, to me, even though we're talking a lot about the villains, the villains get a lot more backstory and stuff like that, their motivation and whatnot. I think the real value of this book is that it takes you on the journey with Edith because she's encountering so many confusing things in the movie and having to just sort of like convey on camera, boy, that was a lot. And (laughs) the book does a great job of being like, this is the exact thought process she's going through. She is weighing, what is my position in this new family? What kind of move do I have to make to gain status, to show affection to these people who, you know. And, And so I think just by that metric alone, it's a very successful book. And like I said from the top, I think the language is just gorgeous. So this is a... This is a recommend for me, and I pledge to learn from my mistakes. <laughs> Great. And I think you should read some more gothic novels. I think you maybe would like them. I may. To expand your knowledge base. Cool. I, let me I just mean, check. Oh, there's only I had... six authorized books I need to read right after this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, whenever you get a chance. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, there's a point in the book, which, I had, which is in the movie that I had forgotten about, where Thomas just quotes Jane Eyre to Edith. And it works on her <laughs> um, in a way that when I read it in the book, I almost like threw it in the air. I was so flabbergasted <laughs> by encountering literal gothic language from a literal gothic book, um, just like woven in to the story. Mm-hmm. It's rich stuff. It's good. I feel like, you know, Hannah, I've quoted Jane Eyre at the end of a previous episode. <laughs> I obviously have You haven't read, read Jane Eyre. Come on. Okay. Well, Casey Miko. Wait, you got anything going on? Should people hit you up for to to be taught how to act? What's 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 on the ball? Um, sure. If you want to study with me, we I have a lot of options. I teach privately. I also am uh, one of the program directors of something called the Musical Theater Accelerator Program. You can learn more about that at mastermindroad.com. Uh, it's an online program, so if you're somewhere else in the country, you can still see me there. Fantastic. You're the best, Casey. Thank Thanks you so that. much for coming Thank on. This was you. really fun. This was an absolute delight. <laughs> well, as always, I'm going to close out the episode by reading a passage from a famous piece of literature, a famous book, and please do tweet at me if you recognize what this is from. Hey, Nancy, why are you sitting in front of the TV and writing at the same time? Well, I'm watching this movie where everyone is speaking in an accent that isn't actually their real accent, and I find it really fascinating. I'm transcribing the story, and I'm not sure what to call it, but I'm thinking I might go with the dictionary. Good night.
Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we gothically discuss the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are touching stories about how a tender sibling bond can be strengthened by the introduction of a loving spouse. Though this spouse hails from meager money and a more blue-collar sensibility, her humble perspective allows for the mysterious, rich protagonists to appreciate each other and the world around them with a more caring gaze. These books also employ the supernatural in order to illustrate how the memories of our loved ones live within us, guiding us towards true love and fulfillment. Novelizations are gentle, soft, and gorgeous. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. And I'm Hannah Blackman. Crimson Peak <laughs> ah, is a 2015 gothic romance film directed by Guillermo del Toro. It follows Edith Cushing, an aspiring author who is haunted by the specter of her mother, which warns her to beware of Crimson Peak. When Edith's father, Whatever that means. Who knows? Can't wait to find <laughs> out. When Edith's father holds a meeting with potential business partner Thomas Sharp, Edith and Thomas find themselves magnetically in the throes of love. Edith soon learns, however, that her father does not approve of Sharp at all, and instead, so that's so far so good, and instead, so far so great, so good, <laughs> instead wishes her to marry the sinister <laughs> Dr. Alan McMichael, a man with a poor haircut who will not accept her disinterest in him. Damn. Wait. I mean, true. I, well, okay. <laughs> When Edith's father suddenly dies, she hopes she can leave with Sharp to a place Alan will not follow. (laughs) In grief's clutches, she marries Sharp and moves to his remote mansion, where his sister Lucille, distant, mysterious, and depressed, is hesitant to connect with Edith in any way. As Thomas's mining operation gains momentum, Edith has the horrifying realization that the mountains of clay it produces are the titular crimson peak of which her mother's ghost warned. What's worse? The clay layer of the Earth's crust. Oh, that's not just a question. What's worse? (laughs) What would be worse than that? But what is worse (laughs) is this, and it's that the clay layer of Earth's crust that they are mining is actually a cage constructed long ago to contain an ancient savage beast crushed under the weight of grief and alienation edith must form a beautiful lasting bond with lucille in order to convince the siblings to close the portal to hell that they are accidentally prying open in order to stop what we assume is the end of the world these three lonely souls must bind together as a found family to battle a devil they welcomed into the world what Edith fails to consider, however, is that the real threat may be this... This... Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> uh, what she fails to consider, however, is that the real threat may be the scorned Dr. McMichael trekking through the snow to rid her of the husband of her dreams and a sister-in-law she now cannot imagine living without that dog. The novelization of Crimson Peak was written by Andrew Overby in his head as he deeply misinterpreted the book, even though the book's pretty clear about what's going on. (laughs) It was based on a gross misunderstanding of the audiobook, read by Imogen Church, and played back at 1.4 times speed. So that's an Andrew problem. (laughs) I mean, but my book sounds pretty good, right? It sounds good, too. Yeah. I mean, it's not Crimson Peak, but like also sounds pretty good. 
tale as old as time. My, my, I love my husband and my sister-in-law, but Satan himself <laughs> is trying to crawl out of the earth. Yeah, I mean, uh, tried and true. <laughs> <laughs>